Hello, everyone, and welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. I'm one of the show's hosts, Kevin Gastola. I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And for this discussion, we're going to spend the time talking about the Democratic National Convention Platform Committee. Uh, there's a lot that's been happening. And uh, we've we've been following uh, the development of this ever since we heard people were appointed. Yeah, no, and um, they finally voted on stuff this weekend, um, and that was insane. But uh, yeah, if you haven't been paying attention, the Democratic Platform Committee has been going at it at hearings for the past couple of weeks, and the reason is because the, the I mean, there's like five of the people, so it's a 15 member committee. Right, Kevin? And it's appointed um, – five of the people were appointed by Sanders. Yes. And six by Clinton and four by uh, the DNC, by W. Wasserman Schultz, meaning basically they're all – you know, basically all those ten people are pro-Clinton and the vast majority of the Clinton people are um, – like lobbyists and just like democratic insiders and except for like a couple. So, uh, so why don't you go ahead and let everybody know who's, who we're talking about. Yeah. Oh. So before we got going and, and got into uh, why we actually think this is significant and worth following, even though we're in unanimous agreement that Democrats are pretty awful. All right. So the makeup of the committee, and this is in alphabetical order, uh, former U S representative Howard Berman, uh, American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, or you might know this union as AFSCME. Uh, he's an executive assistant to the president. Paul Booth was um, on the, appointed uh, a, a former White House Energy and Climate Change Policy Director, now a lobbyist, now someone involved in Madeleine Albright's group. Uh, her name is Carol Browner. Ohio State Representative Alicia Reese. Uh, a former State Department official, Wendy Sherman, who, uh, Rania, is she involved in lobbying? Yeah, yeah, she's a top lobbyist. She's like a top person at the Madeleine Albright's consulting firm. <laughs> right, okay. And then um, our dear friend, Center for American Progress President, Neera Tandon, uh, were, uh, those are the people who are uh, Clinton, and then uh, I think one, or, one of those is, uh, Berman's a DNC uh chairwoman debbie wasserman schultz appointee and then we have the five people who are from uh bernie sanders uh campaign so that's bill mckibben cornell west uh we've got keith ellison and james zogby uh from the arab american institute and uh, of course bill bill mckibben if you don't know is the environmental activist uh cornell west the scholar and uh and there's one person I'm missing. Deborah Parker. And Deborah Parker. Absolutely. We can't miss her because um, she's from – she's the indigenous woman from – and I'm, I apologize. I don't have the name of her her tribe, but she is from Washington State. Yeah. And uh, so this is the makeup of the committee. And, and I guess what we can say uh, is that most of the votes broke down around a, a 8 to 6 or a 9 to 5 uh, so, or, like, or, the Sanders or, people voting together and then sometimes joined by a couple uh, of people, like, by their Barbara Lee. Oh, yeah, we left out Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee was appointed to the committee, and um, and she would often – and then Louis Louis Gutierrez was on the um, committee, too. Yeah, and if you're not familiar, Louis Gutierrez and Barbara Lee are two of the more progressive members of Congress. Unfortunately, Gutierrez was also one of the first people to um, endorse Hillary Clinton – I assume she's given him some sort of like future position in something. Um, but yeah, so that was the makeup of the committee. And it's, it's, I mean, it was really fascinating to watch. It was long and, and, and parts of it were extremely boring. But the parts, I mean, Kevin, I think you watched maybe more of it than I did because it, it really did drag on the whole day. And um, on virtually every major, major issue, the Sanders people would introduce amendments to the language of the platform to make it more progressive, and then they would vote. And then, like, they would vote on it. And um, the Clinton people would like nitpick about random like words, or or like they would take they would like say, "Oh, well, you know, in theory, we're in agreement with this," but or they would sabotage it with like procedure. 
And so, you know, it was really like, I think maybe one of the first parts we should start on is like Paul Booth of Ask Me. I mean, this is someone who works for like the, one of the biggest, is it the biggest union or one of the biggest, like, I mean, it's umbrella. a major union. It's a ma- I mean, when you talk about like AFL CIO, you, it's in that league. And he was appointed by Hillary Clinton. Um, mind you, this is one of the unions that endorsed her, but also did not actually take vote. Like, it wasn't like a Democratic vote from its members that they decided to endorse her on. It was just the executives and the leaders of the union. But he, the head of the freaking union, was when the Sanders people tried to introduce um, an amendment to strengthen the language around the minimum wage to make it reflect the fact that like we strongly support $15 minimum wage and even more than that. He was the, he's the one who led the the vocal opposition to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was really striking to watch. He also, I believe they wanted language that uh, strongly forcefully like um, came out against the TVP and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And again, Paul Booth was one of the voices, one of the voices who said, no, wait, Wait, I mean, there were others as well, but, and I think one of the main reasons was, well, Obama supports the TPP, so. Paul Booth carried a lot of water for the uh, Clinton campaign. And, it was disgusting to watch. And and he's he's not a good speaker. He rambles, and I, I can barely understand what his arguments are, but it doesn't matter. It's He's just eating up space to justify people voting in opposition because basically by him rambling, none of the others on the committee have to go on record in opposition. So it's, it's like they're perfectly comfortable with hiding around his bumbling talk about whatever issue is on that. And so I wrote about the trans Pacific partnership part of the discussion. And it was really fascinating just because what was going on here. So, so I have the basic language. This is what they wanted in the platform. Uh, Keith Ellison proposed this. It is the policy of the Democratic Party that the Trans-Pacific Partnership must not get a vote in this Congress or future sessions of Congress. And the strangest thing, Rania, I don't know if you saw the specifics of this discussion here, but the reason why this couldn't be in the platform was because it would be wrong to oppose not the president, uh, not, not President Obama's well-founded position on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but in fact, it would be wrong to show that we are not united with our dear leader on this issue. Because Donald Trump, something about Donald Trump, they kept mentioning party unity was an argument that was often invoked. <laughs> well, right. Well, so in this particular case, Trump. Trump did not come up, but, but you know, we have all of these, you know, and, and the thing that's amazing is people from the Sanders camp would put out some of the most stark details about this. So like in terms of trade saying, okay, well the TPP is going to grant Malaysia, one of the worst human traffickers privileged access to the U S market. And, El- and Ellison said, our workers wouldn't be competing against low wage. They'll be competing against no wage because in Malaysia there is slavery. There is actually slavery. Uh, and, <laughs> and everyone's like, stop it. What are you saying? And, no, and, and, you not know, in public. And someone like a Sanders policy advisor. So, so there's non-voting members there. And someone who had some strong remarks throughout the proceedings is, is name, his name is Warren Gunnels. And he is a policy advisor to the Sanders campaign, but he did not have a vote. Um, he was there and he made a point of like how many jobs are probably going to be lost because of the TPP. It's something like half a million. Um, and uh, and Bill McKibben had a really strong point about how corporations will use the dispute resolution process of TPP because I didn't know this. I learned this from watching the Democratic platform that TransCanada is seeking $10 billion from the United States government. Did you know this, Rania? No. It's seeking $10 billion because it did not get the Keystone XL pipeline. Oh, shit. Are you yeah, serious? It's, it filed a claim against the U.S. government through uh, under the process that was set up by the North Atlantic. Like they want reparations or something? Yeah, basically they're wronged by the process that like something went against them as a corporate entity. And so they've, they've, they've basically filed a claim. Um, and they're trying to extract $10 billion in taxpayer dollars from our government because they did not get their poisonous tar sands pipeline approved by the Obama administration. 
God damn. Wow. Uh, I mean, that, so, this is like this was just like one of the fault lines. So I mean, this is it an really. Example, and there's others. Yeah, but these fault lines. I mean, this is this is like what we're describing here with the TPP vote. It like replicate. It's like repeated itself throughout the day with most issues. Uh, we could we should talk about the fracking issue, which was um, just re- really incredible. I mean, again, Bill McKibben puts forward this very strong amendment uh, asking for a moratorium on fracked uh, gas, uh, and uh, he says, you know, very clearly, hard to argue with this. The logical thing to do going forward is to halt the rapid advance of fracking where it is and not allow it to expand out across the continent, endangering people's homes and lives and endangering even more powerfully than that the atmosphere all around us and the climate on which we depend. Uh, Everyone talks about how it reduces carbon emissions. He made the very clear point that fracking plants are responsible for leaking huge amounts of methane. It's like uh, it's, it's really... Uh, staggering uh, yeah like fracking i mean it's just it's it's the um the, the the fracking is particularly i mean all extractive you know methods are bad but fracking in gen- in particular really accelerates um like the the issues that that you know that lead to climate that are, that are increasing climate change <laughs> and so it, it makes sense like the argument he gave it's like how can you say no to that right and they have but, a potent example just sorry they have a really potent example with Andrew Cuomo in New York, where fracking was banned. Right, there you go, fracking. Like, but no, it's like the, the arguments were stunning. I mean, I've, we've heard Clinton give this one before, but Wendy Sherman, who I believe she appointed, right? Wendy Sherman, yeah. who works with Madeleine Albright's group. You know, again, Wendy Sherman used to be in the State Department, revolving door. You know, uses all her influence to go peddle. Like, well, actually, she came back and forth. She worked there and then went to the State Department. And did the Iran deal and then went back to Madeleine Albright's consulting firm. But her her argument against banning fracking or against like this language, you know, calling for a moratorium on fracking was Russia. It was that Russia is like dominating coal and selling coal. And so we can't let Russia dominate the energy industry. So we have to push fracking as an alternative or else Russia like she was just fear mongering about Russia. Right, right. Later, so so later in the, you're actually uh, correct. But this goes to another thing later that Bill McKibben introduced, where he said the State Carbon Department fracking. should not be involved in selling fracked gas to the world, like Hillary Clinton actually did in her State Department, like the State Department actually did in uh, 2010, and uh, and. Uh, so it is stunning, this, this Cold War mentality mm-hmm. that uh, even though we need to advance renewable energy sources, we may need to advocate for dirty energy to prevent Russia from getting an edge in this race. Uh, What's really stunning to me is like when I just like when I watch these conversations play out, especially around climate change, like it's like the situation around climate change is so dire right we've already passed all these tipping points like it's like it's like like so climate change is gonna happen in really bad ways already like there's you know you can't do anything to to stop it at this point and i I think that maybe you know we talked about this before like 2020 being a tipping point um and like we're not gonna meet it but the thing is it's like you know you tell you these people talk about republicans denying climate change and how is this any better how is it any better to acknowledge that climate change is a thing and still accelerate towards disaster? Like that to me is actually even more reckless because you actually, you know, you know, I mean, I really do think some Republicans like are, most Republicans are like no better, but at the very least, some are kind of idiots. Right. And like have like fallen for this like denial shit. But no, like with Democrats, it's like you're not even pretending to be you're not even pretending to be in denial. Like, you know, it's coming, you know, it's happening and you're still destroying the planet. Like that is the most cynical, like, like just like confirmation to me that elites just don't give a fuck. Like I mean, also it's their their quote industry science. They they're making scientific arguments that are made by the natural gas industry. So if it's wrong for Exxon Mobil to influence science and 
uh, obscure the impact of what they do, well, then these Democrats are just as bad. Carol Browner is just as bad when she sits there and she, and also Paul Booth did this, they, they talk about how carbon emissions are being reduced just after Bill McKibben makes it clear that that can't be the metric because, in fact, we actually might be putting more greenhouse gas into the atmosphere now by transitioning from coal to natural gas because I get, it's actually more of a pollutant uh, a polluting energy than coal because of the methane. Right. So it's they just don't incredible. care. They don't care. They don't care. The thing is that that's what just shows you these people don't give a fuck. Like they don't care that they're destroying the world. Like they're okay with destroying the planet. That's what it shows me. Like it's the most, it's the most like sociopathic kind of behavior. I mean, it's it's a part of a rotten system and the way our system is set up. But still, I mean, just to see these people, like they just don't give a fuck. They don't care. Like they don't care that they're destroying the planet for the vast majority of people. And the other- they don't care. They're in it for like just making money for America for themselves, like for American corporations. That's it. And it is just like so these I mean that that to me is like you're a monster. Yeah, and the other thing is Bill had a, a separate amendment where he wanted to Keep it in the ground. Uh, this came from the, the the movement that has been trying to impress upon our leaders that we should keep our reserves of fossil fuels in the ground and um, not drill. Uh, he called for keeping over 80% of all known reserves of fossil fuels in the ground and uh, say that Democrats agree that the next president of the United States should not grant new leases for fossil fuel extraction on federal lands and waters, nor renew existing leases at their expiration so really big amendment got shut down uh so uh, he, you know he explained all this stuff about how like we have roughly five times as much coal gas and oil in our known reserves that we could burn and have any hope of keeping the temperature below one and a half to two degrees uh the the incre- increase that we have uh one it was guaranteed as part of the not so great paris climate deal but also, like, we have a very real fear that we have to pay attention to how much the Earth's temperature is going to increase. And uh, so so there's that. Uh, what if I read you what – so we should talk about Cornell West's role in these proceedings because it's well, just – Well, real quick, I just want to point out that before we get to that, um, you know, I, I don't know if you stay, if you watched it till the very, very end because it went until far, long past midnight. It went until like 2, p- 2 a.m. Well, so I wanted to um, read his reaction to uh, – Cornell West's reaction to Democrats voting down all these things that would actually do something about climate change or that would actually put some teeth into the platform uh, and say like these are the actions we want taken on climate change. Yeah, what do you, go ahead, read it. And and, and so uh, I know it sounded like I was going to get to a larger point, but uh, just thought it would feed into talking mm-hmm. about Cornell. But anyway, West said, it just strikes me that the argument about jobs and the argument about states does not reflect the depth of urgency impending catastrophe that was put forward. Uh, so just to give a little bit of a quick background there, one of the arguments from people like Paul Booth was that they needed jobs. Uh, And Bill shot that down really quickly by saying renewable energy would actually have more jobs than the coal or the natural gas industry. So anyways, um, and uh, he said, I discern a pattern. And I thought he, he, he got in on this so well. The pattern is, well, Brother McKibben, you're speaking truths. We're so glad you've been out there breaking your neck in the movement. But when it comes to these kind of considerations, we've got some counterfactors, jobs, states' activity, as opposed to federal activity, and it just doesn't strike me that your insights are informed by the unbelievable sense of us being on the edge of the abyss as a species vis-a-vis nature. Yeah. Like, how else do you, that's perfect. Like, how, what else are you supposed to say to that? Like, that, that's exactly the case. And these, again, these people didn't give a fuck. Like, they don't care. I mean, edge of the fucking abyss, guys. They don't care. Uh, we don't like care. they're just like, yeah, like we're gonna push you off. Not not only do they not care, like they're like, you know what? We're just gonna fucking push you off and watch you fall, like and laugh and laugh and like also like nitpick at you while you're falling. 
I mean, Deborah like, Parker could be like, I rely on clean water. Our tribes really need to have clean water. And they're like, yeah, don't fucking care. They don't, they just don't give a shit. Like, it's just, God, it's so, it's so striking me. And, you know, it's, um, like, so the, what I want to say about Bill is that later, as it came to, like, the end of the, and they closed everything at the, at like, 2 a.m., they had to, the last vote they had was whether to, uh, move this platform that they'd spent all day amending or not to the next stage, which I think is like in Orlando, Florida. There's like another meeting where they like bring up these things again. Um, and so Bill McKibben at first, like basically like he was going to abstain and he said it was just like, he, this is not, I mean, basically this isn't something that environmentalists can be proud of. Um, but then he was shamed into not abstaining by people like Barbara Lee and cause they all like went around giving a speech about before they voted, like giving a little last say. Um, and the reason was because, and the reason they think they invoked party unity and they also like made it sound like anybody who didn't push this forward was like somehow going to get Donald Trump elected. <laughs> Like that was what they kept using as we're in a diet, you know, we're this is serious Donald Trump, you know, we got to defeat Donald Trump. Um, so that was like really frustrating to watch. And then the, um, the other issue that went down is like, so are we, are, is there any else, any other issue you wanted to mention? Cause there's a couple I want to bring up. Well, I know that we have some really huge foreign policy issues to talk about. Uh, should we pause for a moment and talk about a couple uh, bright moments in the proceedings. I mean, something really great well, so, happened where they abolished the death penalty. Well, that's actually what I was going to bring up next. And it was interesting how that happened because they, I, they tried to defeat it. Yeah. So Ellison, I think it was Keith Ellison introduced the amendment to um, basically a, a, a add language to the platform opposing the death penalty. Very basic, very simple. Death, like the death penalty is bad. He gave a good argument for why it's bad. Basically every major country on earth, you know, um, like every major uh, developed country um, has outlawed it. And uh, the U.S. is like one of the few. And, you know, there's also the lethal injection issue where they're like injecting people with things that we don't know what they are. Uh so, you know, a very basic thing. As you know, Hillary Clinton does not oppose the death penalty. Um, if you remember during a debate or during a town hall, she was asked by somebody who'd been exonerated from death row if she if she supported ending the death penalty. And she said, she said no because of terrorists. She supports the death penalty still because of terrorists, which was like a bullshit cop-out. But so she, this happens. If they introduce the thing about the death penalty. They take a vote on it. They take a vote on it. Mind you, Paul Booth, again, is the person who comes out against the uh, opposing the death penalty. And he says it's not out of moral reasons. It's because not everybody opposes it. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And then they vote on it. And it, it's like the Clinton people kept raising their hands, putting them down, raising their hands and putting them down. So Elijah couldn't count the vote. Um, like so Elijah Cummings couldn't count the vote. And so he, and then even though the more enough people voted for it, there was a majority of eight people, I think it was, had voted for that language, which is, a, a, you know, among 15 people, a majority. So it didn't really matter who voted against. But regardless, even though a majority voted for it, they tabled it. And that means like they pause, they pause it and like go back to it later. And um, the Sanders people started making a stink about that. They were like, I don't understand why you tabled it. And so eventually they forced them to come back to it. And at that point, like they had no choice because they had been shamed. Like people had been watching online and started shaming them. Uh, so they came back and decided to vote against that. That was like one of the, the, the bones they threw out to the Sanders people was the death penalty bone. Yeah. Uh, and I believe they did get a millionaire surtax. Yeah, but it was like, that's like, what, a 4%? Sur I mean, that's something that Hillary Clinton has supported. Here's the thing. It was, it was very obvious after the death penalty issue that the pattern that was emerging was that the Clinton people were sabotaging any issue that she didn't want on the platform. Oh, absolutely. So let's get into the foreign policy stuff. Well, so, I mean, there was stuff that came before Palestine, but um, I actually didn't get a chance to watch it. Okay, so I can tell you... Um... The the big thing before that was the no-fly zone mm -hmm. with Syria, and somehow they managed to intimidate James Ogby into retracting his resolution about the no-fly zone. <laughs> uh, and I think that – I'm not sure why he didn't fight for it, but uh, here's, the, here's the language. I'll just uh, – I'll go ahead and say that the language he wanted to put into the platform was – 
The Democratic Party does not support direct military intervention against the Assad regime, including the imposition of no-fly zones or safe zones, which top officials have warned would require hundreds of aircraft and thousands of troops. Such interventions risk drawing America into another military quagmire. The U.S. must not get dragged into perpetual warfare in the Middle East. And he said, basically, that this would make it clearer. Again, a lot of the strategy of Sanders people, according to their own arguments, I can't, we haven't seen an actual draft of the platform, so we take these Sanders people at their word. But they keep saying, we're just trying to put flesh on something that is already essentially in the platform. And the Clinton people object because they say, well, we just want it to be vague. But, like, obviously we, we are on board with not mil- not intervening militarily. In yeah, they kept being like, we're on the same side here. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> right. And so he, you know, and so what I want to say is that they had this full debate over it and there were points made about the uh the conflict in syria and and also the history of humanitarian interventions that you and i would both object to but then what was really strange is after they got done with having their discussion which fell along the contours that we would expect it was just it was withdrawn and it nothing was ever offered again and so it was just accepted i guess that This part of the platform does not support uh, direct military involvement by the United States, so there's no reason to clearly state it. Well, they had to pick their battles. I mean, they were, you know, the thing is they were trying to make the Sanders people seem like they were the ones being difficult. Yeah. That was another thing. They were, like, totally gaslighting them in that respect. We're like, you got, like, I think at one point they called their, um, like, they it was just like there was all this, like, bickering going on and, like and even like Elijah Cummings like was unfortunately at points like yelling at them. Yes. Like I know like and, and they and they were being so nice to him too. They were like thanks so much for leading us, and he would just like yell at them for like wanting to you know care for caring about certain issues that were really important. But um, you know I. Well, it just makes them feel very insecure. Uh, so whenever anybody from the Sanders camp disagrees with them. You see in, in Carl Browner on the fracking issue or, uh, or Elijah on the TPP, this like, don't you tell me I haven't fought for poor people. Don't right. you tell me that I haven't ever stuck up. I'm from the inner city. I've seen the inner city. There was one point at the end too, where Elijah Cummings was like, look, I don't like to brag about myself. And it's like, I, have you listened to yourself <laughs> <laughs> at all? This whole like, you know, day but with syria i did i peeked in for like I, I saw like a little bit of what happened and watch the whole thing around that part but i did see wendy sherman of madeline albright stonebridge group right um using the like citing the 50 diplomats from like the 50 state department employees who um who like wrote a letter anonymously supporting a no-fly zone <laughs> in syria and supporting an escalation and I was like, that's your reasoning because of the anonymous people at the State Department who, like, are excited to get jobs with, you know, Hillary Clinton's administration. <laughs> and also, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, the woman that's being floated as Hillary Clinton's Pentagon chief, her name is Michelle Forney. She is a, like, if you think Hillary Clinton's hawkish, this woman wants American boots on the ground in both Iraq and Syria. Um like and it, like she wants to increase American boots on the ground, like explicitly in Iraq and Syria, in addition to a no fly zone. And in case anybody is wondering, like what a no, like why a no fly zone is so, such a big deal, the, there are Russian planes flying in Syria, um, not as many as there were a few months ago, but there are Russian planes flying in Syria. So beyond the human catastrophe that already exists there, and not wanting to accelerate that misery by shooting down planes, the planes you would be shooting down would be Russian planes. So this would eventually start a war between the U.S. and Russia. Like, that is not good. <laughs> that is actually, it's really bad. And that's, that's another thing about the Clinton you know, the Clinton people is like they are a lot, they have a neocon, like, Cold War mentality where they want to ramp up aggression with like aggressive actions towards Russia. And I think that, 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 I mean, it's like, what the hell's wrong with you people? Um, but so the other issue that got a lot of play, so like, okay, the issue of Palestine came up, right? Yeah. Let's get to and that. They, they, so first of all, like Kevin, I, you weren't the only one I heard this from, but apparently it was very difficult to attend this thing. 
in person. Uh, so that's first. Second of all, the live stream, the audio on the live stream is so low. You can't actually hear what they're saying most of the time. Um, like that, it's that low. And, and that was intentional. Um, and then the Palestine vote, uh, from what I heard from people who were both there and like who were talking to people who were on the, who were like part members of the committee and like they're, you know, um, connected to people who are on the committee is that the Palestine vote was intentionally delayed until the middle of the night so that it would get the least traction in terms of people watching it. And so, um, they brought, it didn't come up until I think after 1230, like, like almost 1am. Um, and, uh, basically the Xander's people introduced an amendment and it wasn't that crazy. Like it was literally just, um, adding in language to call for the end of Israel's occupation and to call for the end of illegal settlements, which is basic U.S. policy, actually. Um, not even that radical. Uh, and also to, um, you know, add, it, like, added something about Palestinian rights. Um, and it also added a call to rebuild Gaza. And it also, interestingly, so the actual platform, we don't have a copy of the draft so far, but James Zogby, when he was offering his amendment, read it out what it did say and where they wanted to delete. One of the things they wanted to delete from the platform was um, calling uh, for like, um, it was like, it was like forceful opposition and doing something about BDS. Oh no, <laughs> I, I know what you're referring to. Uh, there was a part about uh, fighting delegitimization of Israel and he wanted to delete, including at the United Nations or through the BDS movement. So in the view of the Sanders campaign, whatever happens at the UN or in the BDS movement is not deleg delegitimizing of Israel. Right. And so they wanted to remove that. And um, and the response was it was like it was actually like got really um, fun to watch. Because first, Wendy Sherman talks, and Wendy Sherman is like Hillary Clinton. She's just really good at talking in circles until you forget what she's talking about. Um, she's like so long-winded, and it's like it makes it hard to to a get a soundbite from her <laughs> that's like coherent, uh, and b to even know what she's talking like, so to even remember what she started talking about. So Wendy Sherman speaks out against it. Then uh, Howard Berman, who literally could put like Howard Berman could be someone who would be great if you have insomnia. Um, you could just watch it. It would put you to sleep. Like he's the most, if, you know, Paul Booth was not anywhere near as uh, mind-numbingly difficult to watch as Howard Berman. So Howard, but Howard Berman basically, you know, came out against it. And um, if you like, and his argument was that Palestinians apparently have an entitlement program for terrorists is what he said. I have no idea what the hell he's talking about. Um, but he, that's, he used the word entitlement program. Uh, he tried to say that, and he tried to say that that if if anything, the platform should be condemning Palestinians <laughs> for incitement. Um, so that was Howard Berman's take. And then, so one person we did not mention who's on the committee, who was appointed by the DNC, and there's a reason she is. She, her name is Bonnie Schaefer. Oh right. Bonnie Schaefer is not even a pol like she's not involved in politics beyond her donations. Like she's a huge donor to the Democratic Party and has been for a while, but her like that's all. That's all. The reason she's on there is because she's a big donor. The reason she has money is because she's like the former co CEO of Claire's Stores. Uh, if you're familiar with the Claire's Stores, I mean they're basically like the cheesy uh, jewelry, like cheap jewelry stores for like twelve year olds yeah. for preteens. Get them hooked early, and then they'll buy expensive jewelry yeah, later a bunch of, like plastic shit like literally just like crap jewelry for like preteens from sweatshops probably from exactly no but yes exactly and like you yeah so that's that's literally that's all she like i don't understand why she's on the committee i think she might be the only person who's just like there for being a donor um but bobby but, but bonnie schaefer her argument against this language is that i am a gay Jewish Zionist and Tel Aviv is the one place in the Middle East where I can hold my wife's hand in the street. That was her argument. And James Zogby, who is of Arab descent, responds, you may be able to hold your wife's hand in Tel Aviv, but I can't even get past the airport without being interrogated and grilled for hours because I'm of Arab descent. I'm not even Palestinian. I'm Lebanese. I'm Lebanese. Like he's like, I'm Lebanese American. 
he was like, and then he described us like a time when he went to go meet with Al Gore for dinner at the Knesset and he didn't make it because he was stuck at Ben Gurion airport for seven hours being interrogated because his father's Lebanese. And then he was like, and then he took that to like segue into the, the horrible discrimination Arabs face in Israel, both out, like both in the, you know, in the West Bank and Gaza and even people who live inside Israel as citizens. And um, it was, I mean, I, I, you know, James Zogby is somebody who is, he's very cordial and he is very calm and he got worked up. Like you don't see him get, this is not a guy you see often getting worked up like this. And he got really worked up and fired up and just like went on a tirade. Um, and it was like really, you know, it was really great political theater. Um, and this is why they wanted it at night because this is like, you know, this is the, this is the issue. I think that's like, it's the third rail of American politics. It's taboo. You're not supposed to talk about it. It's like, you can air shit about fracking. Um, and it's, you know, and, and they'll, they'll, they're happy to like, you know, um, defend that more openly, but the Israel Palestine issue, it's not that they don't want to defend Israel. It's that they really don't want any, um, debate whatsoever to seem like it's even happening in the democratic party period. Uh, and, and so that's why they like buried it to deep into the night. But then Cornell West spoke and he made, I mean, he made again, like, you know, if you saw the previous stuff he said during the hearings about this issue, he was like, tell the truth. Democrats need to tell the truth. You know, I come from a people who, um, who, uh, you know, have been treated savagely and we want you to just tell the truth about the boots on our necks. And he's like the same with the Palestinians. And, you know, he made this like analogy that was really strong. And, um, and, uh, and of course, like as he's talking, you know, near Tannen sitting next to him and her face, like she just looks like she's like playing with her hair. Like either she's just completely zoned out because she doesn't care or she's like, you know, planning her, you know, Cornel West's demise, one of those two things. And of course, Bonnie Schaefer is on the other side and she's just like shaking her head. Like, no, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm a, you know, like I'm a gay Jewish woman. <laughs> I want to hold my wife's hand in Tel Aviv or whatever the hell her stupid argument was. And so, and so it was amazing. And then at the end, um, and so of course this didn't pass. It was eight to five, all five Sanders support. Oh, and then, you know, one thing that Bill McKibben said, um, and mind you, like Bill McKibben hasn't really said much foreign policy wise, like this is not his area. Right. Uh, but he actually spoke out on this part because he said something that I thought was really a, a good statement, which is that, you know, this is an election of a lot of historic firsts, including like we might have our first woman president. Right. And he said, well, you know, Bernie Sanders is the first non-Christian, um, the first, the first candidate who's had a bar, who's been bar mitzvah. That's what he said. It's the first candidate who's been bar mitzvah to make it this far in a primary, to even win a state in a primary. That's huge. And he was like, and this is a man who, I mean, he was directly involved, personally involved in crafting this particular language. And he was like, and I think that's really important to like note, but nobody gave a shit. Like, Nobody cared. Um, and that's one of the reasons that one of the arguments wasn't about anti-Semitism. Like they weren't even arguing the anti-Semitism angle that hard because it, uh, this is coming from Bernie Sanders. But so then it comes to the abstention or to the part to vote about whether to move this forward. And oh, yeah. So like it, it lost eight to five. Has Luis Gutierrez actually been there, even though he's a Clinton appointee? He actually is a bit is becoming a bit more progressive on this issue. I think he has a family member who's actually I think his daughter um, might be active around this issue actually um and has sort of opened his eyes a little bit on it but either way um he had he been there he probably would have voted with the sanders people because he actually wrote a joint letter with keith ellison um asking for like you know recognized palestinian rights call for the end of the israeli occupation so he probably would have voted for this but he wasn't there so it would have probably been eight to six at the point but either way it lost because of the clinton people they voted it down they voted for apartheid and then it comes to vote to move the, the platform onto the next stage. And Cornell West gave a, what I thought was a really rousing um, a, a, a reason for abstaining. Um, and he basically said, and it wasn't just Palestine. He said, look, if we can't even get language in this platform that opposes or that supports, you know, the, that, that opposes TPP and that takes seriously what, like, the, you know, the foremost mind on environmental the greatest I mean, prophetic I, voice. Yeah. Do you have the, do you have the actual like quote? Yeah, what he, I've got, he, he basically, well, so it's, I'm paraphrasing parts, but I've got the, 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 the biggest and most incredible 
parts of his closing was just basically that abstention is in no way a devaluing of the magnificent work, which I think is important to have said. Maybe we wouldn't disagree, but it was a big thing to say in that room because everyone was giving you really evil eyes for daring to abstain from the platform. As you said earlier in our podcast, everyone wanted party unity. Yeah. um, and so he's in no way for me as a human being to support this. We can't say a word about TPP uh, if we can't talk about Medicare for all. All right. We didn't get into like single payer health care didn't make it yeah. to the platform. Uh, so then he said, if the greatest prophetic voice dealing with impending climate c- catastrophe can hardly win a vote. And also, if we can't even acknowledge occupation as something that's real in a slice of humanity. So those were all reasons why. Uh, he could not support moving it on to Orlando. And he was like, it's not because I'm better than you. He was like, it's just not how I roll. (laughs) That's what he said. (laughs) And yeah, I think, I mean, people were clapping for him because there was actually people in the audience. There was Palestine solidarity activists in the audience who made sure to stay throughout. They even like took turns because they wanted to be there when the vote for Palestine went down. Uh, But yeah, I mean, and it was like a really good, um, you know, what he said was really good and important. And, and also, you know, I have to say Deborah Parker, um, you know, cause she gave, cause everybody went around and talked about whether they're going to, we're going to vote to push it on or not. And Deborah Parker said, you know, while we, we did lose some fights, I do want to push this on. And I do have to say like, they got, you know, she got language in there, um, basically recognizing the oppression of native Americans, which is important. I got, you know, that's like important. Yeah. And, but it, interestingly enough, you know, she, she gave this like, she actually started to tear up. She was like, at one point she said, um, you know, Bernie about Bernie Sanders. She's like, I have to like thank Bernie Sanders, um, as a native, you know, he's like, he, who, who believed that like a native American woman could have a strong voice on this committee. Um, and I believe she's like the, I guess she's the first native American, uh, woman on this committee. So that's like a big deal. And she, um, actually said, Bernie Sanders is my hero is what she said. And, uh, I mean, that was like, I mean, that was interesting, you know, that was like, interesting to hear because you know you've heard this 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 whole narrative around sanders being this like white messiah as joan walsh called him who is you know the leader of some white angry male mob uh and so i I, you know to hear to see like an this is a native american woman saying that this man actually like empowered me this this candidate empowered me to be here um i thought was really striking and like just kind of like well yeah great you know like fuck all of you who who tried to make him out to be this like white leader my mob leader but either way i mean it was it was like really um good to watch cornell west i mean you know had cornell west not been on there i don't know that there would have been as strong of a voice because no one else was really like you know keith ellison's great james zogby's great whatever but like at the same time they're definitely people who are because they're inside the system they're inside the democratic party and they have been for their careers they're fine with making compromises and so cornell west was like the one person there who was not i think and like strongly not like you're not going to intimidate cornell west you know and so having his voice be there i think um is really like it's really powerful just because you have somebody saying to the face of the democratic party like you guys are not doing like your guys are not good enough in fact, you guys are you guys suck. I mean, he represents the conscience of the American people, right? Of like all of everyone who's involved in the deepest parts of these struggles. He's the one articulating, and I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure that Bonnie Schaefer, a CEO of Claire's, never thought she'd have to deal with someone <laughs> quoting Malcolm X in her face, and that Neera Tanden hopes she never hears about. You know Paul Robeson or or whoever else or W E B Du Bois ever again. But like the fact is that it was tremendous to have someone who could summarize. Basically, what Cornell would do is he'd summarize what had just happened. It was like he was doing. <laughs> he'd summarize it in like a realistic way. Like this is actually the reality of what just happened from like the way that you or I would write. Like the way that you or I would see it. Like he summarized the far le- like the left's analysis of how terrible it was. It was like real time left wing sports commentary yeah. of the <laughs> of the DNC platform committee. Of like, so what you just saw there, I want to just tell you, <laughs> nobody here seems to feel the urgency to deal with this climate catastrophe. I mean, it was really, it was awesome. That was really cool, like, to have that there. And, yeah, like you said, I mean, these are people who 
do not ever have to deal with listening to Cornell West unless he's behind like some sort of police riot line, you know, like they don't have the, 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 the kinds of things Cornell West was saying. They don't ever have to, that's never said to them. Um, not like that at least. And so to those people, like, it's like, it's like the highest level of disrespect possible to disagree with them that strongly. Um, so they, I'm sure that they're like, they're just like, you know, you know, outside of the meetings, even though they're acting like all nice about it, they, they are probably talking so much shit about West. So it's, but it's great that he's on that committee for that particular reason. I imagine that's why, um, that is why Bernie Sanders appointed him. Uh, but yeah, I think that this is like, I think that this is really a clarifying moment that the democratic party as it is, is not, you cannot reform these people. Like, not the people that are in charge of it now cannot be reformed. I will say that at the state level, I keep hearing from people who are involved in state conventions. And you've written about some of these state conventions. Yeah. And the, from from what I hear from some of these places where the Clinton supporters just haven't been coming out for the conventions in a, in a lot of these places, in a lot of places, like in Missouri, um, is that the Sanders supporters are, and a lot of these people are people who like weren't really involved in politics and now they are, and they're taking over positions because they can. Um, and so that, I mean, that's important. Like having people that are good on the inside, that's really, really important. At the same time, this has convinced me, not that I ever really thought that the democratic party was reformable, but if you ever thought it was, this is really diminishing that prospect that it is reformable. And I think that on the issue of climate change, because it's so dire, because we're at the abyss, you know, of catastrophe, it's like, we don't have time to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and do this incremental change bullshit. Um, so that's yeah, that's like kind of what it no, was I'm a- with you. I mean, the the planet's on fire. Uh, we don't have time for you to sit there and patronize us about party unity and or to say here here or there there. You've done great work. We're so glad that you took the time to draft four paragraphs and put your passion into words. And it's so great that we got to hear you. And you're knowledgeable and an expert on this subject, but we just we just can't support you because we're craven and are just going to follow industry. And it's just like we just don't have time for that anymore. No, we don't. But the thing is, like, unfortunately, that is who's going to be in charge. And so it's pushing back against that. It's like it's just sad. It's like really it's frightening to think about, like, what the you know next 20 years is going to be like one thing I want to get in here. Uh, it is a, it's connected to this. You, you mentioned the state meeting. I would be, uh, making a mistake if I didn't just mention what happened in New York before we wrap. I only want to take like three or four minutes, but this is very, uh, incredible episode that unfolded. And I wrote about it. I talked to three uh, Sanders delegates that were in New York at the state meeting, and then they all came prepared to participate and were shut down by the people who were running the meeting. Um, they have nobody from the Sanders campaign was involved in administering the meeting, so there's no real person to advocate on their behalf when the rules are sidestepped entirely. And so they called for a vote. They're trying to get Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, to be the head of the chair of the delegation. And they wouldn't allow an up or down vote on Cuomo. Uh, they, they, had, they outright anointed him as the chair. And they did not want to allow anyone to... Uh, proposed another person to be the delegation chair. Uh, and even though they would have won because they had the numbers, all right, Sanders only got 42% of the votes in the New York primary. Even so, they still didn't want any opposition against Cuomo to be registered, so they just steamrolled right over all of these people. And then, you know, this woman, Nomiki Konst, who is a... Uh, Oh, was that her full first? I didn't know that was her whole first name. What? I didn't know that was her first name. No, like, Yeah. That's her name. And, that sounds uh, cool. She's a uh, Sanders surrogate. She's done many appearances on CNN and Fox News at this point. 
And yeah, she's been like a, actually, it's been really great seeing her because she's like really good at just, um, you know, very coherently and concisely destroying the arguments of Hillary Clinton supporters is well, what she, I've noticed from her. She went for, through a conversion. Uh, she was a Hillary supporter and came over to the Sanders camp. And so she was there in New York because she's a delegate and she went up to the microphone and tried to help all the people in the back of the room who were being ignored as they shouted uh, that they had motions, that they wanted to object, that they wanted to challenge uh, the selection of Cuomo as the chair. And she grabbed the microphone and then they cut it. <laughs> this <laughs> this person just cut it. And there's this, uh, all of this was captured with a, a Facebook video. They, they had someone there doing a live stream, which again, she, she was pointing out to me, she goes, people there, they, they just hate us for the fact that we want to do stuff like this. Like, everyone kept saying, you can't put me on video. Get that video out of here. This is blah, blah, blah. This is not a public place. She's like, no, like, I can do this. I can put you on camera. This is a, this is a public <laughs> thing that is happening here with this meeting. So, anyways, they cut her mic. Um... And they wouldn't take any motions, and they moved on to, like, information, a PowerPoint presentation about what you need to know to prepare for the convention in Philadelphia. And it was just, they got railroaded. And then and then the thing that should have gotten much, much more attention but got zero, zero corporate media attention was that an elderly, white, Clinton delegate who has a cane... Uh, uh, first, uh, Mamita Ahmed, who is this co-founder of Millennials for Bernie. I mean, she's a woman of color, young woman of color, one of the youngest people in the Sanders, in the, not only in the Sanders delegation, but in the New York delegation itself, came uh, walking up the aisle uh, as she was trying to rally people to help uh, get recognized by the chair who was ignoring them. And this man reached out and, like, grabbed her um, and then... Uh, hit her on the like back of the leg with his cane, so she was yeah. Right- but she was a Bernie bro, so she was rightfully <laughs> pissed about that, and she went away to like tell someone about it. And then she comes back, and this is this is fully captured on the video. Oh, on the video, she goes up to him, and uh, she says, "Don't you ever fucking touch me again." And she gets in his face. Wow, Bernie bros are like so mean to the elderly. Yeah. Um, and so then this guy took his cane and you can hear this really loud thwack in the video and she, she, she got caned by him. Well, he was defending himself from a Muslim and, uh, and then Muslim Bernie bro and, uh, everyone, uh, the one, and people started making rationalizations for his, uh, abuse of women. Uh, the person around there was like, he's old, he's old, you know, just. Just don't pay attention to him. And so then he was leaving. <laughs> then he was leaving, and Mamita and a couple of her friends tried to confront him and, and point out to the people at registration that something should be done about this guy. Uh, he he just hit a woman with his cane, um, and he said, go to hell. And then when he was leaving, uh, this guy, whose name is David, uh, was saying, you know, don't you ever do that again. Don't you know what you did? Uh, why did you do that? What made you think you could do this? And he was like, why do you beat your wife? What? Yeah, he said that back to him. Um, uh, just, just, oh, well, this guy, and so this guy, but you mentioned in your article, this guy is not some stranger. No, no, He's no, like, so Nomiki, I got this from Nomiki, she said that uh, everyone in the Democratic Party uh, at, in this uh, town of Granville, New York, knows this person because he's hosted meet and greets or fundraisers <laughs> at his home. So, and I told Mamita this and she was like, what? Because people there at the state meeting were essentially pretending that they didn't know who this guy was. So they didn't have to take responsibility. And she was, you know, that, that I think that added to her rage rightfully so, because they were acting like they didn't know who this individual was, but and, and Nomiki made a very uh, obvious point to me, which is, and I referred to him as a prominent delegate, or I asked if he was prominent, and she was like, well, you know, we're all prominent, because we had to run to get elected as delegates. I was like, okay, well, fair point. So, like, all of these people who are in this delegation are somebodies, is my point. 
And so, yeah, this wasn't just some, like, old, like, you know, strange old man who was confused. It was like, no, this guy is, like, involved, like, deeply involved with the Democratic Party in this area. And everyone was making excuses for his abuse. I mean, you can imagine if it was the other way around. And if it was the other way around, I would denounce it. You know, I would not even not denounce it like I was responsible. But, like, if it was the other way around and I heard that, like, some Bernie Sanders supporter had, like, caned a woman, I would have been like, holy shit, what the hell's going on? It's something fucked up shit. I hope this guy is, you know, being, you know, there's been, there's consequences for this guy. Not like excusing it and not only not excusing it, but, you know, Kevin, I'm so glad you wrote about this convention because the only other media coverage of it was there was a political article and I think some, an article from somewhere else that I didn't read, but it basically said that the Bernie Sanders supporters were the ones that were being um, aggressive and difficult. Yeah, they were unruly because they yeah. would be quiet and accept that there wasn't going to be a democratic process. I mean, again, it was a lot. It had similarities to the Nevada meeting because they weren't going to accept motions from the floor. But that's that the meeting is supposed to follow this parliamentary process. Well, and one thing they, that was interesting that you mentioned in your, or that you know, Miki says that you quote her as saying is that you know she used to work with helping people in developing countries. Yeah. Make their election like teach them like how to do like democratic um, process processes for their elections, and here she is in the U.S. like having some of the same issues that she, they do. She went to Libya on behalf of the State Department. Yeah, like, and and just like for her to be like noting that like whole like it's like just shows you the level like the undemocratic nature of the way all of this shit's going down to suppress any sort of influence, like to suppress the rising younger, you know, the mostly, I don't want to say completely younger, but more like the younger, more progressive, more left-leaning generation of people to prevent them from having any influence whatsoever in this party, um, especially in important states like New York. Uh, There's one thing I want to mention uh, before we totally wrap, and that is that... Um, that Hillary Clinton has been receiving tons of endorsements this week, uh, and she's been bragging about them to her press list, which I'm on. Um, and uh, a lot of them were – there was a whole email she sent out or her people sent out about uh, Republican – or about um, – sorry, about CEOs, about company CEOs who have endorsed her. And a lot of them were Republican CEOs who have been, like, staunch Republicans for most of their – you know, um, public careers, uh, who are suddenly endorsing Clinton. So I thought that was interesting. And then even more interesting is that, uh, over the weekend, I think it was Friday, Hank Paulson, yes. uh, wrote an op-ed endorsing Clinton. Now Hank Paulson is a, I don't know if he's back at Goldman Sachs, but he definitely was at Goldman Sachs before he was at the treasury department or was he in charge of the fed? He was a Federal Reserve chair. Okay, so Federal Reserve chairman. Sorry about that. So, and he was Federal Reserve chairman during, you know, if you remember, during 2008, when all these uh, Congress people, uh, senators and Congress people, were brought into like a room uh, during the George W. end of the George W. Bush presidency to hear about how they had to vote for this bailout, or else it was like catastrophe was coming. It was Hank Paulson who was the one who, who, um, who like held that meeting to fearmonger and tell them they needed to vote for TARP. Uh, in his op-ed, interestingly enough, he writes about how Donald Trump – it's mostly against Donald Trump. And at the end he said – Sorry. Gonna, uh, yeah. he, was, he was not the Federal Reserve Chairman. He oh. was the Treasury Secretary. Oh, my – wait. I thought that was Tim Geithner. Uh, so, no, that's – I'm sorry. Tim Geithner's during Obama. I'm sorry. I'm confusing Goldman Sachs. Yeah, so and ben, Berna ben Bernanke was the Federal Reserve Chairman. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. So he was the treasury secretary. That makes actually more sense. So, um, but the point is, is so, so Hank Paulson writes this op-ed in the Washington post. And at the end he declares he's going to vote for Hillary Clinton, but it's the op-ed is about why Donald Trump is so bad. And in the beginning, it's like, he's a demagogue, whatever. And then a few paragraphs later, he actually says, like, I feel like I should actually read what he said because it's that worth it. He says, now is a time for a bipartisan approach to policy solutions that address the most difficult domestic problems. There are two key principles an ex-president must address to maintain our economic competitiveness and security. Uh, first, we need to maintain the United States' fiscal strength by reforming entitlements. And then he goes on to talk about why that's important. And he says, but I find it particularly appalling that Trump, a businessman, tells us he won't touch Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So that's like, I mean, that's the reason, that's the most important. He says there's two things, and that's the first most important thing that you have to do to fix the economy. And the reason he can't vote for Trump is because Trump, he, he's, he's utterly shocked Trump doesn't, won't cut Social Security. Like, that's disgusting. 
Um, and then the fact it's really telling that he's supporting Hillary Clinton. He finds it okay to support Hillary Clinton. That's really, really telling about what he thinks is the future going to happen in the future around entitlements. And then his second thing that he says is most important is we need to welcome rather than shrink from the trade from trade and economic uh, competition. And then he denounces Trump for coming out against trade deals like NAFTA. And so that is why Hank Paulson feels more comfortable um, voting for Hillary Clinton. So that's one. The other thing um, is um, so you guys might know of a man named Robert Kagan. If you don't, this man is a leading neoconservative thought leader, has been for a long time. He was one of, like, the architects that, like, you know, helped um, really lay the, the framework uh, with all the other neocons uh, around the invasion of Iraq. Robert Kagan has been, obviously, he's been signaling for quite some time that he's going to support Hillary Clinton. He finally came out and said he will. The Clinton campaign has officially allowed him to join them. He is going to be um, uh, speaking, he's headlining a official Hillary Clinton campaign fundraiser in DC next month. This is, I mean, this is literally the Clinton campaign allying with a neoconservative explicitly, explicitly like no qualms. It's not like Robert Kagan has had some sort of like, like has reflected and come out against his awful, um, you know, ideas. It's not like he's against any of the wars he's proposed. In fact, he's proposing more wars, more aggression, and he's very upfront about that. And the Clinton campaign is embracing him. That, like, officially, in an official capacity, that's really, like, that just goes to show you, the, the like, where Hillary Clinton stands. And beyond that, it's like people were, you know, people were defending this by saying things like, well, we need to defeat Donald Trump. We need, to, we need to open the umbrella up. We need to accept as many people as possible. Hillary Clinton has to, you know, this is a chance to, 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 to peel off Republicans. Well, hold up. Hold up for a second. Like, would you ever say it's okay or that you want to um, expand the tent to include, you know, the umbrella to include neo-Nazis or to include, like, open fascists or racists? No, you wouldn't. But in this case, it's okay. To me, neoconservatives are not that different. Like, I mean, neoconservatives are literally proponents of fascism abroad. Like, that's the kind of, you know, uh, uh, like countries and regimes that they support. And they support mass murder. Literally, they support mass murder. They're okay with mass murder. And that, to me, is no different. So why is it okay? Like, if you're, it's one thing to have, an, like, to have, like, a bigger umbrella. But it's interesting to me that Hillary Clinton's umbrella includes neoconservatives and not people like us. Yeah. Uh, So I have just a few thoughts, and then we definitely should wrap this discussion. But what you're saying is very important, the question you're raising about incorporating neoconservatives and others into the Democratic Party. I think this, this action by the Clinton campaign solidifies my view that people, even if you're going to vote for Hillary Clinton should be focused on building up alternatives to the Democratic Party, uh, especially in this election. Uh, should be, you know, even encouraging the efforts of the Green Party to have Jill Stein on ballots in as many states as possible. Should be actively pushing for Jill Stein to be on a platform in a debate along with uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the general election debates, you know, the, the two or three that will be allowed to go on when those happen. Uh, just because, you know, if if it was logical, let's say you're just a standard Democrat, if it was a logical thing more than a year ago that Bernie Sanders could influence and make Hillary Clinton more progressive, if that was a logical argument, the same goes here, that you need a Jill Stein on stage to tug at and expose what Hillary Clinton is doing to a large audience that would be tuning into their televisions to watch whatever crazy circus is going to unfold <laughs> between Clinton and Trump on, on yes. our television screens. Uh, I mean, I think it's just, I think you can be a Democrat. I want to, I want to have this very nuanced position that I've actually never incorporated before, but mostly this has to do with what has unfolded with Bernie Sanders. I think it's a trap for movements to align themselves with the Democratic Party. Absolutely. But 
let me caveat that with this basic thing of if you're going to take two or three minutes to decide that your vote should go to a this and that individual inside the Democratic Party, so be it. That's your personal decision. I'm not going to tell you, you know, what I'm not going to tell anybody how to vote. I am going to talk about the positions and policies that certain people in power support and, you know, whether you know, I think there are fundamental problems that a person should have in supporting those individuals. However, if you want to go pull a lever, fill a box or whatever for any person, go for it. But I would say that if you are going to do that, you should simultaneously be in favor of opening up the system so that we can have more choices and more voices because it's in your interest. The people you get to support within the Democratic Party are going to be stronger progressives, are going to be possibly even Democratic socialists, and they're going to have space because there is no refuge for their corporate Democratic policies. There's, there will now be a counter in other parties or in the candidacies of independence that they have to grapple with. And so we've seen that happen with Hillary, that when she was campaigning, she had to take and co-opt Sanders's positions in order to remain viable in state primaries. I think Ken Sanders also showed us how important it is to have somebody be able to break through that, like the, 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 like the corporate news barrier yeah. where they're actually getting out a left message on a massive platform and it ends up resonating with people. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that that's a clear point. And then there's another point that I want to leave us with. Um, I don't want to go back into this conversation too deeply, but I do think that it needs to be stated clearly that at the moment, the challenges on the people at the top of the Clinton campaign and, and everyone who is in media promoting Clinton's campaign to show me a clear example of bro behavior by Bernie supporters where they have done anything violent, where they have done anything thuggish. If you have something, I would love to see it because we now have a clear example of Clinton supporters doing this behavior, which you have condemned throughout the last six to eight months. Well, it's and also not the only example. I mean, Wendell Pierce, an actor who is on the board of a Clinton Foundation um, organization, was arrested and charged with um, with battery for like for for stalking for like literally following a woman and her boyfriend for following a couple in a hotel upstairs to their room to like and and to physically assault her because they got into a fight about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Right. So we have two examples. You have I've seen zero. You have angry words from people who have eggs as avatars or like they have nondescript names that allow them to be anonymous on uh Twitter and they have like a few hundred followers. All right. Well, so um, that does it for our episode, and uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back um, with – we're both at the Socialism Conference next weekend. Right? Yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to record. We um, probably won't uh, do an episode that weekend, but that's because we're hearing some tremendous people and trying to uh, find guests for future shows because yes. we're definitely going to meet new – amazing people that will want to share with you. Yeah, so we will be back hopefully in two weeks then, and we'll have a lot to talk about. Alrighty. 